Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. In today's episode, we speak to Joe Cohen and Marianne Shikatans about how they define net zero and the different approaches taken to achieve it in the US and the UK. Joe is the CEO and founder of Joe Cohen Architects, a residential, commercial and mixed use architecture studio based in central London. Her firm has significant experience in designing and delivering 3M excellent projects and call for the client's sustainability aspirations to be incorporated into the brief from the start of each project. Marianne is the founder of Studio Shikantans with a portfolio spanning the Western United States as well as Europe. As a leader in the integration of green design principles, Marianne's firm aims for a net zero rating for every project with all specifications adhering to leader principles. Thank you so much for joining us today. Joe. if I could come to you first, could you please let us know how you would define net zero? I think net zero, we, there's so many different expressions now from net zero to positive zero, but ultimately within the UK to define net zero, it's creating that balance between the power of home needs and the renewable energy that you need to generate in order to match that need. So it's really looking at a home that generates less than or only as much energy as it uses. And that's the operational definition of net zero. And from a construction point of view in the UK, it's ultimately related to carbon emissions. So it's ensuring that through the construction of a home, you utilize less energy in terms of its construction than ultimately what's needed to create that home in the end. So it's, it's that balancing up, really. It's, it's the net zero balance. Yeah, I think maybe it would be beneficial for the audience to to distinguish that really clearly at the beginning, the difference between net zero greenhouse emissions and net zero energy, because the terms get sort of mixed up. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. So, I mean, I think, you know, carbon neutral, net zero, all of these aspects um, or, or discussions get thrown around a lot. And they, they're different in every different asset class and sector. So mm-hmm. in terms of aviation, it'll be one. In terms of construction, it's another. But in use is pretty critical. And I think what we're really trying to do is, as architects is look at the homes we design, is thinking and, and utilizing ways to minimize to the absolute max, the amount of carbon that we need to create, say the materials, the construction through that process, and ultimately to balance that out. Now that may be through offsetting, it may be through creating renewable energy, but the next aspect of it, which is super important in terms of architecture and homes, um, and Marianne, no doubt you'll, you'll agree, is actually how then does that home operate in the way it's used in the long term. And I think that's the clear distinction really, you know, that we make as architects and that will be balanced out in different industries. But I think if we are doing an architecture conversation, both are equally important to one another. Do you think there needs to be a piece of work done globally to make sure that everybody understands the aims and aspirations more clearly? Yeah, the short answer is yes. And I think that net zero in itself is like net zero what? So, so So net zero just means that whatever you use, you produce, you know, that that it's an equation that's balanced on both sides. It doesn't clarify anything. So just to clarify once again, net zero energy means that you... It means the total yearly energy consumption by building is equal to the renewal energy created on site. And I wanted to reflect on my feeling that we have two lines, two streams of thought here, as it were. 
We've got net zero building, which to my mind means putting a building up with the least use of carbon as possible and making sure you're not increasing carbon by doing that. And then we've got the second stream, which is the aim of net zero energy sources. I think I'd add in the third stream, which is as designers or architects, how do you allow people to live naturally in a way that's more sustainable? You know, and I think that's got to be a really positive part, which is the operational net zero strategies of buildings. And they're very, very simple ways of achieving that. And how easy is it to design a net zero home and make it last long term? I mean, I think from our point of view, there's two aspects to this. And I think what we need to understand is that where this is becoming the most critical is actually in urban environments like cities, as opposed to simply erecting something on a green field. When we approach a site, often there are buildings on that site. They may be built in concrete, they might be built in brick, you know, all of those. The moment you demolish a building, ultimately, it's almost impossible to ever get to net zero because of the embodied energy within that building has been demolished. Um, and ultimately, that energy is then wasted or lost. And you can look at different recycling techniques with it. To your question of if you were to just simply be building a brand new house on a greenfield site, the technology is there to do it. The difficulty is not actually, and, and this will be different to the US and the UK, is not actually to achieve that. The difficulty is to do it viably. And that is the thing that we're finding the most difficult at the moment is the UK move headfirst into reaching its energy targets, both of 2025, 2030 and 2050 is really actually the cost of that technology at the moment is still more expensive than utilizing traditional methods of the past. And ultimately, the way that buildings are procured and homes are procured in the UK, whether it be through the house builders or developers or investors, the more expensive something is to create, the less profit there is at the end. So as architects, we're sitting very firmly in the middle of what is quite a difficult dichotomy, which is that we want to use every technology available to us to create net zero homes. And those technologies are there through solar, through you know glazing, through you know materiality, through local materiality. And, and not importing, you know, not carrying, you know, steel over significant distances. The difficulty for us is actually how to do it within the cost parameters of the viability. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges for us. And I think the other aspect of it is the orientation of homes in terms of making the best of solar and some of the energy opportunities that there are here, as well as the space take of, of air source and ground source heat exchanges is proving a big challenge for us in the UK, where we have a very small land mass and a huge number of people per capita to it. But I'm sure Marianne will probably be able to give you a different view of the US. And I think that also has to be contextualized against commercial buildings and suburban housing. Yeah, so in the US, um, net zero energy, especially in California, it's very easily achieved. It's not very expensive either. It amortizes between three and seven years on average. And, and it's something that is that is very easy for us. And there's a big push to just decentralize um, energy production anyway, because we have a real problem with the public utilities. So that part is, is very easy to achieve. And there's also in terms of longevity, if you to, um, maintain, you know, the solar panels properly. In our case, it's cleaning it if you're close to the ocean, you know, that you don't have salt built up and things like that. They, be, they, they do lose productivity over time, but we have some up over 20 years and they, they still, the 
energy loss is very minimal from them. So capacity of a panel has greatly improved and, and is getting better every year and they're getting more reasonable every year. Now in terms of net zero greenhouse emissions or being carbon neutral, that's a super complex issue <laughs> that uh, I don't think anybody has really a full handle on. I think education and really, you know, being as mindful as we can about the release of carbon. But that is a very big balancing act. And when you're on a green side and you want to really like rebuild a lot in the open landscape, you know, the minute you try to plan in the landscape, you have to grade a lot. And the release of carbon when you start digging into the earth is, is very big. So it's a difficult issue. And also trying to, on every item that goes into a building, trying to figure out what the carbon footprint of that faucet or those that flooring is, that is just very difficult to trace. Marianne, I, I couldn't agree more with you on that. And I think that, you know, this is such a massive topic. In terms of carbon neutrality, it's actually some of the definitions and how you define it and how you measure it. But it's just to sort of explain potentially to the audience, it's that balance between the emissions of carbons and the absorption of carbon from the atmosphere effective into carbon sinks. So it's in order to achieve a net zero on carbon emissions, then ultimately we have to be balancing that with sequestration. So it's it's a it's a really complex one. And, and the biggest issue that we're finding in the UK and no doubt worldwide is actually accurate measurement for it, if you know what I mean. So it's that data issue. Um, and I'm sure you're having exactly the same aspect, which is why from a governmental point of view here in the UK, the focus is massively, certainly in architecture and in housing or commercial buildings, has really been on the net zero challenge or now coming forward, the positive zero challenge, which is basically how do we create microgrids and how do we actually add more energy back in than we're taking out, which is where it's all moving. And I think uh, to Marianne's point about California and, and the, the ease at which net zero is achieved there, there are a few reasons that actually we're struggling and we feel that we're more behind the rest of the world in certain ways on it, is we are building ultimately sort of suburban housing at 50 units per hectare, whereas the US is, tends to be more 28 to sort of 32 units per hectare if you're thinking about somewhere within, say, a 15 minute of a major city. And, and of course, that's variable and changes. So, But the, the reality is we also don't have as much sunshine. With density, we have less roof space because we're going into terraced models, you know, more than we are from a detached model point of view. And the nature of plots and footprints of that density starts to make effectively the utilization and of, of air source and, and, and ground source in terms of strategies more and more complex to achieve. The thing is that solar is the most, the easiest way for us to, to generate energy, particularly in the operational long term. And I think in countries like the UK, where sunshine doesn't, doesn't come in abundance, albeit global warming might change that, that's actually one of the biggest challenges is how, with what we have here, do we generate that energy simply through solar? So we have to be looking at much more extensive measures than that. And Marianne, you mentioned earlier the upkeep needed for solar panels. What needs to be done to ensure that these products maintain the best standards? Are there any upgrades needed and what are the cost implications of this? 
Well, the panels have improved immensely. So the question is, do you want to have more kilowatt out of the square footage you currently have and exchange your panels after 10 or 20 years? But then you also waste a lot of material, right, when you do that. So right now we are monitoring that very closely on our older solar panels. And, you know, we we have sort of 10, 12 kilowatt systems that have lost maybe a kilowatt, but not more over the last uh, 20 years. So they're doing quite well. And the only maintenance you really have is to clean them. So if there's no buildup, then, then they produce as planned. And the nice thing about the whole uh, net zero energy business is that that can be all calculated very easily. So its usage is a very simple equation, you know, a usage of kilowatt hours versus production. So... And, and that is for PVs or for electricity. Perhaps I could lead on to you, Joe. I've read about Eddington, which is, well, perhaps you could tell us what it is as a project. So Eddington is a suburban extension of Cambridge. It's on land that is owned by the University of Cambridge. And most of the universities in the UK, like the US, own big, large land banks, and what we call a suburban extension, which is when you are creating housing and and local hubs, you know, hotels, supermarkets, but effectively new communities. And we are working with the University of Cambridge and Present Made, um, which is a a build-to-rent family housing platform. So that is purpose-designed homes for rent for within Eddington in Cambridge. And a huge emphasis on that has been how Because it's a rental community, because it's a long-term institutionally owned product, ultimately, how do we, A, build it to target net zero now? How do we look at that from an operational sort of sustainability matrix going forward? And how do we really help people living there, you know, as a community to work together to achieve as much as they can. And that's that's beyond simply the house. So it's in terms of recycling, it's circular waste, it's zero waste shops. It's ultimately all the aspects that also contribute towards environmental improvement and, and our overall collective responsibility. But the University of Cambridge have been incredible stewards in terms of that. We have various accreditations in terms of, well, BRIAM is very much commercial buildings accreditation. We've got the Green Buildings Council, we've got BOPAS, we've got Code 5 for sustainable homes. Um, and all of those aspects have needed to be considered. What has been really interesting, I think, for the UK on this and why there's been a lot of interest is we've pushed quite hard in terms of density as a strategy to contribute towards net zero and still creating places and and streets and, and spaces that people want to live. And that's been probably um, one of the key kind of drivers with the interest in the UK. So, and there's a few aspects of that. So, by density, we have less roads. Roads cost money, they cost, they're huge infrastructure, and there's a huge amount of energy that goes into them. The more houses you have in terms of density, the less further you take any kind of energy in terms of the service, however it's generated. The second aspect that we've looked at is very landscape-led. So, that means that every street has sustainable urban drainage. So, pumping and draining water, which is a big issue for us in the UK, probably less so in in California, is one of our biggest energy users in the UK. So how do we do that? And, And really then looking at the design of homes there with that density to actually 
And these are small houses. So, you know, these are 95 square meters for a three-bedroom house. That's the minimum, you know, minimum sizes in terms of the UK. How do you design these homes so that people don't need to turn their lights on because the size of windows is, is relative to the spaces that they're in? So how do we move away entirely? We have no mechanical ventilation to entirely natural ventilation strategies. But then also, how do we deal with major climatic differences in terms of solar gains on south-facing facades versus north-facing facades? So this has been a strategy that's been about collective community. It's been about design excellence in terms of the University of Cambridge and its stewardship and actually thinking not only in we're building the modular, but not only how we're building the homes, but how people are going to use and live within them. And so it's that whole contribution really to collective environmentalism. So, so that's that's what's been interesting about Eddington, really. And cost-wise, you mentioned earlier the importance of the viability of these projects. How does Eddington fit into that particular issue? Well, look, I mean, this, the viability is so complex in the UK. And with Brexit, you know, the, the cost of materials and labour has been really significant. The cost of land in the UK, because it's such a small island with 70 million people on it, is extremely high. Bill costs aren't going in any direction as they're going up at the moment. So it has been very challenged in terms of that. And the focus really has not been us as an architect simply approaching this as trying to create the most beautiful houses possible, but actually going quite simple in terms of the architecture, but how do we create buildings that contribute as much as possible and reevaluating the spaces between homes, you know, reevaluating, you know, neighborhoods and communities and, you know, the, the, that green, we call it green infrastructure and blue infrastructure and ecology and, and the introduction of that. Viability has been very challenged on it because all of those aspects push down the build costs that we have available in terms of what we're doing and a triple glazed window in the UK costs 35% more than a double glazed window. But we've had one of the most progressive developers in the UK with a large scale American institutional investment, actually, who has prioritized that as part of what they're doing in the belief that ultimately it will increase rents um, and that it becomes a key consideration for those people moving into those homes. So, yes, it's been very trying. But we have other developers who are less progressive than that. And that is and continues to remain a major challenge. Yeah. So I imagine that if the investment is going in now, with one small example, triple glazing rather than double glazing, the buildings will hold their value for longer. I think for long-term rental assets, you're correct. So an institutionally owned asset. So if somebody's a developer, develops 50 or 100 or 200 houses, and he just sells them to new homeowners, right? He's out. There's no incentive really in the long term. But if an asset is a yielding asset, whether it be a commercial building or it's 200 homes that are going to be rented in the long term, with the move of ESG within the UK and worldwide and the access actually to funding on that basis, we can't be developing brown stock today. Right, which effectively becomes uninvestable in the future. So yes, there is a present made a very clear on that, that they understand that they are creating longer term value in their asset, in their homes, by investing in some of these very simple technologies now. Yeah. And one last question to you, Joe. Do you think broadly the UK approach to net zero is moving far enough and fast enough to meet the targets that are set for 2050? I think the UK have been incredibly progressive, and I think that was probably demonstrated, you know, by a lot of the statements that come out of COP26. And I think that the ambition is correct and right. However, my issue is economics in the UK are ultimately weighted more than anywhere. And unless we're going to legislate for it, 
in a more formalized way, in a more rigorous way, I think it's going to be difficult. The other aspect we've got in the UK, which is a huge challenge, is by moving away from gas, which is a major utilizer in terms of heating. We have to do a lot of heating in the UK because of the temperatures. Actually, how we produce electricity on an island and enough electricity for the whole world to go, you know, the whole of the UK to go electric cars, for us to avoid sort of gas-fired boilers, those renewables that's our biggest challenge. So yes, the targets are there. Are we trying to do enough? I think I think from a governmental level, yes. Can we do everything? Um, I highly doubt it. But actually what we really need in the UK is an education of people in the way that they live their everyday lives to be able to encourage people to utilize less in terms of plastics to, you know, it, it's very much, a, in my mind, it's a, it's a lifestyle and a consumption level aspect that is actually the one that's going to be the most critical in making the kind of differences that we need to, to avoid the implications that are coming. Marianne, if I could go to you now, can I ask you the same question? Do you think the US's approach to net zero is moving far and fast enough to meet targets there? Well, the U.S. is such an such a big country <laughs> that it is it is extremely difficult to make any kind of global statements for the entire U.S. So there are just areas in the country where they don't even recycle, and then there's California, <laughs> which is very advanced in its uh, in all its energy standards, and in its we have our own green building code that is quite advanced. So, and I also, you know, know very little about other states except Texas. That we we have projects there, and just the regulations there are so behind, you know, where uh, where California is or where Europe is. So, it's very difficult to make a, a global statement for the U.S. I think that when it comes to net zero energy, to the, to the U.S. is very money focused. So, also lead the lead accreditation certification system. You know, it's it's mainly about energy. It's not that much about how healthy a building is. The cost consequences from poor health, that's not really built into the whole equation. But um, so whenever there is a relatively short payback, then you will find a very aggressive movement towards achieving that goal. When there is something like Joe described, where you have a more long-term investment, that's just not in the U.S. culture, you know, so it is always very investment money driven and any kind of shareholders or even or other private investors are trying to look for the fastest return possible. I really agree with Marianne on this. I mean, we're looking to what the U.S. and, and Japan are doing in terms of technologies, and I think the U.S. are way ahead. I, I agree, Marianne, you know, what we're seeing in terms of states like California, my sister lives in Seattle, you know, their approaches are incredible. Um, I think the difficulty for the U.S. in the past few years has been people like Donald Trump saying that global warming doesn't exist. Um, so I think I think the representation is really problematic, and the U.S. has a the general world, you know, certainly the UK see the US with sort of SUVs as, as one of the real guzzlers. But uh, there is no doubt the technological improvements and inventions in terms of technology that are coming, the US and places like California are at the absolute forefront in terms of, of the world. And I cannot wait until the solar tiles become affordable and, and mainstream. It is. It's a very different approach, isn't it? I mean, you're juggling messaging as well as climate issues. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. And as you know, often with these conversations, we open up far more than the initial points on the page. So thank you. I feel really that we've 
we've only really touched the surface of all of this. But if it starts, if it starts the thinking processes and just brings some of these elements into people's view, I think that's an important job we've done. And Alison, thanks so much. And, and honestly, such an interesting conversation, you know, with Nav as well. But I, I mean, I think the thing is, there's, there's been a lot there about definitions. I think the interest there is in the practicalities, you know, particularly some of those last statements. But from my point of view, I think people people want to understand how things are really being solved, you know. Oh, most definitely. The practical best practice. How did they do that? I, if I think about the definitions, they're okay, but most people can Google those if you know what I mean. I think mm-hmm. it's really those that really interesting debate between the US, the UK, different approaches, different climates. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's something we revisit, um, you know, because you mentioned, I've learned a lot today, you mentioned about the US being ahead on technology, you know, is, is there the communication between the two countries working well enough that we benefit from that in the best possible way we can? If you've enjoyed listening to Women Build, why not listen to World Build, which is where we discuss the current trends and ask the important questions surrounding architecture and design. It's released on the first Monday of each month and you can find it by searching World Build on your chosen podcast platform or on our website.